Second Chronicles chapter 19 this evening, if you'll join me there. As you continue to look at the reign of King Jehoshaphat, last time we saw a major weakness in King Jehoshaphat's life. He was one of the good and godly kings in Judah, but yet nonetheless, he definitely had one glaring weakness, if not maybe others we aren't aware of, but one the Bible tends to kind of hold out before us, certainly so we can learn from it, maybe in our own lives, if we might be prone to that same weakness or mistake on occasion. And that was that uh, Jehoshaphat just seemed to have this struggle with being able to say no uh, to situations on occasion, to say no to people in given circumstances. And so because of that, sometimes he would find himself getting involved in circumstances, in relationships that he shouldn't be involved in. And I think we all perhaps have made that type of mistake before where because we didn't have the conviction or the fortitude to say no to maybe a situation, we engaged in something that we had no business getting involved in and we kind of find ourselves in the middle of something that we probably should have never gotten involved in or sometimes again it's a relationship dynamic, maybe a romantic relationship or a friendship or just some situation with a relationship. We partner with somebody in something and we probably had no business getting engaged in that relationship and just didn't listen to the Lord. And then as a result of that, we find ourselves entangled and connected to things. Well, that's exactly, it seems, a problem that kept being sort of a snare in Jehoshaphat's life. We saw specifically last time in chapter 18 together uh, that he had allied himself through a marriage relationship with King Ahab. And of course, most of us know Ahab and Jezebel. They're about two of the most wicked uh, king and queens that existed in the time of Israel's history. And through marriage, he had allowed his son to marry their daughter and kind of made a family connection. And so Ahab on one occasion sort of schmoozed uh, Jehoshaphat during a party as he was entertaining him and invited him to come along into a battle against Ramoth Gilead. And uh, unfortunately, Jehoshaphat just agreed. He did not listen to the voice of the Lord, the caution, the warning that even came through a prophetic word to kind of persuade them to do otherwise, to stay out of this battle. And Jehoshaphat just kept moving forward and found himself in a very precarious spot. Uh, and we saw the end of our chapter last week that as he was in, in the midst of this battle and realized that he was greatly at risk, that at least he had enough sense in the midst of it realizing I am involved in a place and a situation and a circumstance I have no business being involved in. And he realized I am with the wrong people in the wrong place doing the wrong things. And he just humbled himself and cried out to the Lord and basically cried out for deliverance and just begged the Lord, if you would, uh, saying, Lord, help. It tells us that in verse 31, that when he realized he was in that predicament of chapter 18, Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him and diverted the people from them. So he's basically spared by the skin of his teeth. God protects him, gets him through this battle. He doesn't end up losing his life. And that's kind of the backdrop, which is important to chapter 19, verse 1, as it picks up telling us, then Jehoshaphat king of Judah returned safely, and this is a total act of the grace of God, a total act of God's mercy that he was able to return safely back to his house in Jerusalem. It's a connection to that battle that he just got involved in, that having been in the wrong place with the wrong people doing the wrong things, 
thankfully that he humbled himself and said, God, I'm in a bad place. Help, protect me, get me out of this. I'm in a mess. That God mercifully and gracefully, gracefully stepped in and delivered him and he was able to be spared. He didn't suffer the consequences that he could have and it says he's able to return safely back to his house in Jerusalem. Just a reminder of how merciful God really is. You know, when you get yourself into one of those predicaments, whether you're in a situation you shouldn't be in, whether you're in a relationship that you realize you shouldn't be in, the best thing to do is to just humble yourself and cry out to God and thankfully God's merciful and sometimes he'll step in and he'll spare us and he'll deliver us out of that and he can get us kind of back to a place of safety and back on track with him spiritually as well. But notice verse two, as he returned back safely, it wasn't gonna be without reproof or correction because the Bible says that whom the Lord loves he chastens, he disciplines, and God's a good father. And when we step out of line, uh, he wants it to be a teachable opportunity. So verse two says that Jehu, the son of Hanai, uh, the seer, that is a prophet, went out to meet Jehoshaphat as he's returning back safely from battle and said to him, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So the prophet goes out to him and pronounces both sort of a rebuke and a challenge of his error as well as giving him a word of encouragement that yet God was aware of his heart and that this was a lapse in judgment that this was a mistake he got himself involved in that God was aware of his heart that it was generally inclined towards God and seeking God and that God was still going to be merciful to him despite his failure but the rebuke is pretty strong there in verse 2 the prophet comes out and look at his word to the king he says should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. That's a reference to Ahab. That when God looked at Ahab, he looked at Ahab as someone who was not only wicked, but someone who actually hated the things of the Lord and hated the Lord himself. Uh, and God doesn't take too kindly to us partnering with and enabling people who are wicked and who hate the Lord and are going against the things of the Lord. And there are a lot of people, unfortunately, out there who not only don't love the Lord, there are people who actually, they hate God. They despise God. They have a tremendous sense of animosity towards anything that would be good, godly, or moral, or righteous, or anything that would promote the cause of Jesus Christ. And their hatred towards the Lord has them not only acting in wicked ways, but doing everything they can to try and promote wickedness or to stop any agenda that would lead people towards a direction of God or doing the things of God. And the Lord doesn't take too kindly when we find ourselves doing things where we're partnering with such people or actually helping them in their process rather than standing in gracious but yet firm conviction against them by standing up for righteousness and saying, I don't agree with what you're doing. And, and I'm standing in opposition to that and opposed to that. And Jehoshaphat had kind of partnered with Ahab. And so here the Lord's rebuking him for really just getting himself in a position where he was unequally yoked. That was the problem. He was a godly man and a good man, and yet he found himself unequally yoked in this battle in a partnership serving together with King Ahab 
out on the battlefield. And you know, the Bible does caution us all throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, we get the same command given to us about getting into unequally yoked partnerships with unbelievers or those who are doing wicked things rather than serving God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, to us do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. He got himself yoked together. And again, this imagery of being yoked is the picture of two animals under the wooden yoke where they would each put their neck into one side of the harness to pull the plow to work the fields. And they would never yoke together two animals that weren't compatible. Uh, if one was stronger, one was weaker, or one tended to have more of a rebellious nature and one was more compliant or one animal maybe uh, you know, just was of a particular type, you, you wouldn't yoke together two different animals that weren't compatible because not only would you not plow a straight line and be productive, it actually would be counterproductive. Uh, a lot of times the animals would end up just harming one another uh, because typically if one would just sit back on its you know, hinds and the other one would try and pull forward, then the one that was trying to move forward in the right direction would actually harm itself because not only would it be trying to go in the right way, but the dead weight of the one that didn't want to go in the right direction would actually at times even break its neck as it would try and pull itself forward. And it's a very good image at times of what can happen when we get unequally yoked in relationships uh, perhaps with an unbeliever as a Christian. And we think, oh, it'll just work out. I mean, they're kind of Christian. I mean, they, I mean they have respect for God and they only carry a gun on the weekends now. I mean, they're getting better and, and uh, you know, they, they, they only cuss on Mondays the rest of the week. They, and, and we make all these rationalizations, a lot of times because of emotional connections or we see some advantageous situation or, and we make these concessions and we get into relationships where we're unequally yoked and it gets us into some real jams. It never works out. And the Bible even tells us that we're commanded not to do such. It says, do not become unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As a Christian, we should not be in a romantic relationship, which could potentially result in marriage with someone who does not share our same love, commitment, level of dedication, and, and willingness to walk with Jesus compatible to ours. It's, it's just not healthy. It's something that we should avoid. It's only detrimental to our relationship. I don't think as Christians at times we should be entering into other forms of partnerships, business deals, and you know, partnering together in, in doing business things or some, you know, okay, we're going to agree together to work on this together. A lot of times when we do that together with unbelievers, there are a different set of moral convictions about what's right, what's wrong what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and we really can get ourselves into some very unhealthy situations just like Jehoshaphat did. So he says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So again, important principle, even in the New Testament, and Jehoshaphat manifests that, and that's why he's being rebuked here for what he's done. He says, look, you've aroused the Lord's anger because you've become unequally yoked and actually partnered with someone who's wicked and an unbeliever against the things of God. But the encouragement from verse three is nevertheless, he says, look, God has found what's true in your heart, those good things that are in your heart. He recognized it was a lapse of judgment. It was some poor decisions that Jehoshaphat had made and that he had done much to bring spiritual reform. And that notice verse three, he also had prepared his heart to seek God. So thankfully God is merciful in the sense that he doesn't judge us by our one worst act. You know, we tend to do that as human beings. 
you know, somebody can have a great track record, love the Lord, really be doing good, and they they make one mistake, or maybe like Jehoshaphat, they just go through a little season where they're kind of backsliding a little bit or being a little rebellious, and you know that was a, a season. It wasn't just a day; it was kind of a season. Jehoshaphat was involved in some things and out in the battle and doing some things he shouldn't do. Um, but again, God didn't completely squash him and crush him and completely condemn him. It just God recognized, you know, hey, I, I see overall your heart is inclined towards the Lord. You just you got yourself into a little mess there for a little while. Uh, and so God here, I appreciate even his mercy that, he, you know, he's compassionate. He doesn't just judge us by, you know, a few bad acts. He, he sees that what's going on in the depth of our heart and that Jehoshaphat had a heart that wanted to seek God. He just was making some poor decisions and his blindness at the time. So verse four, look how Jehoshaphat responds now to this rebuke. He, it's almost as if it gives him incentive and repentance to want to make things right. And I like this. You can tell he's had a true change of heart. He comes back from the battle. He's been spared. God lets him get home safe. And he's thinking, thank you, Lord, so much. I could have died out there. You're right. I appreciate the rebuke. I was wrong. I, you know, I should not have been doing what I'm doing. But I like it because you can tell when a heart's repentant because it usually gives them incentive to really live more devoted to the Lord on the other side. And that's what you see Jehoshaphat now do in the remainder of chapter 19. It says Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem. And then notice he went out again among the people of Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim. So he travels all the way up beyond Judah, even up into the northern territories of, of Israel. And he goes out and look what he does. It says he goes out and brought them back to the Lord, to the God of their fathers. So, so strongly does he feel inclined that, hey, when we wander, we need to get back to the Lord. He actually goes out now as someone who had failed and God, by his mercy, gave him the opportunity to turn back to the Lord, that now he has a real heart burden. He actually goes out himself on this mission or ministry for a while. And it says he went out and he sought to bring people back to the Lord. What a beautiful thing. That he had a heart for people who had walked away from the Lord, who had kind of transgressed and got off track and got themselves maybe into their own situations where they wandered from the Lord like a you know sheep that's gone astray. And he went out and he said, you know, I want to do what I can to go out and bring people like that back to the Lord. Because I needed to be brought back to the Lord at one time in my life, he said. And, I, and Joseph, I could say, I understand what that was like. And there are others who need to know they can be brought back to the Lord and I want to go help and do that and what a beautiful ministry to, to have a heart to want to go out and bring people back to the Lord what a great ministry to certainly we want to win people to the Lord but there's also a whole other aspect of ministry where we need to bring people back to the Lord who've wandered away or gotten off track or who the enemy's kind of taken them captive to get off course for a period of time. You know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, the book of James comes to mind in regards to what's said here about being brought back to the Lord. Let me read you James' word in the latter part of James. James chapter 5 says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Again, what a wonderful command, a wonderful instruction. If anyone wanders from the truth, well, what does that indicate? Sometimes people wander from the truth. Doesn't mean we should write them off. Sometimes people wander from the truth. 
They enter into error. They make mistakes. Things happen. The devil manipulates their mind and their emotions. And there are lots of different ways. But people can wander from the truth. But God says when people wander from the truth, turn them back. Go look for a way to turn them back. Love them. Reach them. Find an avenue to connect with them and seek to turn them back by grace and through you know the ministry of the Holy Spirit directing you. And he says, and he who turns a sinner back from the air of his way will save a soul and, and you'll cover a multitude of sins. You can help them to cover up something that would have been maybe a major catastrophe had they kept going down that path. You know, Paul tells us right into the Galatians as well, you know, that if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, he said, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, being careful, lest you yourself are also tempted. Again, Galatians tells us that, I believe it's Galatians 6.1 where that's declared, that, that, that when someone is overtaken in a trespass, he says, you who are spiritual, that is not you who want to be critical, not you who want to be self-righteous, not you who want to say, well, I can't understand how anybody would, no, you who are spiritual, who understand the own weakness of your own flesh and that we all have the potential in our weakness to wander from the truth, to, to kind of go astray as a sheep. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Seek restoration. It's a process. Sometimes it's a, a lengthy process of patiently loving and reaching and loving and reaching and loving and reaching and building the avenue to, to help restore. That's the goal is restoration, to restore them. And it says in doing that, carefully so that we're not tempted in the process because there are a lot of ways we can get tempted trying to restore someone else back to the truth sometimes we can get tempted just in our flesh to respond wrongly to them and then they don't get restored they actually just get further shoved off to the side so again we want to with a heart of spiritual love towards people go and i love how jehoshaphat beautiful example here god give us that kind of heart to want to go out and bring people back to the Lord. Well, verse five says that then after he does this, he begins more reforms in the land to try and help. It says he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. So he's now appointing rulers and judges in the different areas. And he said to these judges that he was appointing to their role of leadership, take heed. The idea there is pay attention, pay attention, take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Would to God that we would give that little statement on a plaque, right, to all of our judges. <laughs> Take heed. Pay attention. In that position of judgment, when you have to make judgments about people and in matters and situations, that, and that's what a judge does. They listen to a situation. They are supposed to properly, un, in an unbiased way, evaluate what's going on and then make a proper judgment to enforce what is right or what the law is to make a healthy and a proper judgment. And so he tells these men who are appointed as judges, he says, look, pay attention to what you're doing. That is, don't be sloppy. It's an important role. Pay attention to what you're doing. You know, I think that applies quite frankly for all of us. Whatever you're doing, pay attention. Pay attention to what you're doing. If you're representing the Lord or serving the Lord in any way, or even just as a Christian, we have to pay attention to what we're doing. Because we don't just represent anybody. We represent the Lord. And he says to them, pay attention to what you're doing. You don't judge for man, but for the Lord. 
What you do, you represent the Lord. It's important, so pay attention. Be conscientious, the idea is, because what you do is for the Lord. And he says, the Lord will be with you. He'll help you in the judgments that you make. Now, therefore, verse 7, let the fear of the Lord, he says to these judges, be upon you. That is, you would fear God rather than fear man. That you would want to please God and you would be more afraid of displeasing God because you make an unrighteous decision than you would be concerned about having people like you or being you know, pleasing to other people and so forth. So he says, have a healthy respect for God. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you and take care and do it for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking of bribes. So take notice. Uh, he reminds them of the nature of God. He says, God is a, a just God. God doesn't get into things like partiality towards people. God's no respecter of persons. God doesn't look down upon one person and, and, and give a harder treatment to them, nor does he, in a sense, find himself ever impressed with any person because they seem important or influential or powerful or rich or whatever would cause us you know, to be impressed with a person. God is impressed with no one, and God looks down upon no one. God sees every person as equally valuable and God gives the same treatment without being bribed. You can't bribe God. He shows no partiality and, and there's no sense of God's heart ever being twisted. And so God is saying, look, when you relate to people, he's telling these judges, you do the same. Represent God. Don't treat anybody different than anyone else. Don't show partiality. Don't be easier on someone because you're trying to give them special treatment. And don't be harder on someone and make it more difficult for them because you look down upon them in some ways. Fair and just and equal treatment to all. Verse 8, moreover in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and also the priests, so some of the spiritual leaders and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them saying, thus you shall act, notice, in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. So they were to act in reverence towards God. They were to be faithful in their duty and what they did and loyal and committed in their hearts. And whatever case, he says, comes to you from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed or of offenses or against the law or the commandment, against statutes or ordinance, you shall warn them lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren do this and you will not be guilty. So his exhortation, look, whether it's a case of bloodshed and murder, whether it's just some violation of you know, driving their chariot too fast down the roadway, so look, whatever it is, he says, warn them by upholding the word of God. Give them the law of God and uphold those things. And he says, if you do that, then you won't be guilty before God and you'll minimize God's displeasure and judgment from coming upon the land. And take notice, verse 11, he says, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. So Amariah was to preside over anything that pertained to spiritual matters. Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, he was to be ruler of the house of Judah for all the king's matters. That is, he was the ruler and the one presiding over the civil affairs. And also the Levites will be officials before you his exhortation, the end of verse 11, behave courageously for the Lord will be with the good. That is, the Lord will be with those who do good, with the upright, those who do right in his sight. So he says, look, you behave courageously. Don't fear people. 
Don't be afraid of what people are going to think or having to have their favor. He says, care about what God thinks. Do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Behave courageously. And he says, the Lord is with those who do what's right. And sometimes we need to remember that because you know, the Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. And it's very easy in all of our lives sometimes in different ways to have fear of people. And therefore, we refrain from doing what we know is right because we're afraid of what's going to happen to us or what somebody may think about us or you know, having the approval or, or losing the approval. And God says, look, be courageous. You behave courageously and the Lord will be with those who do what's good and upright. You just keep doing what's good. You keep doing what's upright and trust God's approval is the most important thing in your life. Well, chapter 20 then says it happened after this that the people of Moab together with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Now, isn't that fitting? Jehoshaphat just did a lot of good things, right? I mean, he's, he's seeking to bring spiritual reform. He's going through the land, turning people back to the Lord. He's appointing judges and commanding them, look, be righteous in your rulership and make good decisions and uphold the word of God in the land. That's what will be best for the people. And no surprise that when you start doing what's good and righteous and pleasing to God, that uh, there starts to come some counterattack as a result of that. And it's at this time now, it says that he is now threatened of an attack impending from what would be uh, basically the other side of the Jordan, the people of Moab and Ammon uh, and others we'll see from the area of uh, Syria and Mount Seir, people who had been sort of routine enemies of the people of Israel, they now come and they threaten to attack. And verse 2 says, Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude, a large army, is coming against you from beyond the sea. That is the other side of the, uh, the other side of the, the Dead Sea there, and they are in Hazan Tamar, which is En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat, when he heard this news of the threat of the impending attack of this massive army, it says Jehoshaphat feared. And let me just say, that is a natural response, even for a man of God, even for a woman of God. There's a threatening situation that he's facing. It says it's a massive army, a great multitude. That is, this is something that is too big for him to handle himself. It's something that would easily conquer and destroy him. And so when he sees the situation, he's naturally afraid. And and I think it's important for us to realize as God's people that to be afraid at times is normal. You know, it's, it's not a lack of faith to get afraid in threatening circumstances. Jehoshaphat was a man of God, but he was genuinely afraid. And sometimes we face situations, some you know thing that's threatening to cause harm in our life or some situation that's just huge and some scenario unfolds or and, and we find ourselves afraid. We're, we're worried and we're afraid. God, what's going to happen? I don't know how this is going to unfold. It's a natural, normal thing to be fearful The thing we have to remember is then what we do with our fear. You know, fear is the opposite of faith, and faith is the opposite of fear. But fear does come. God says all throughout his word, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. God wouldn't say don't be afraid if he didn't expect us to be afraid sometimes. So it's okay to be afraid at times when we face things, but what do we do with that fear when it comes into our life and we find ourselves worried about a legitimate situation that just seems 
overwhelming that we don't know what to do with, or maybe that's threatening to harm or destroy our life in some way. It says Jehoshaphat feared, and look what he does. Verse 3, he set himself to seek the Lord, that is to go and pray. And then he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah, the whole people of Judah, gathered together to ask, I like that, help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat's afraid. He has a situation that is too big for him. He can't handle it. And he says, you know what? I am legitimately afraid. I don't know what to do. And the first thing he does is he says, I need to pray. I need to seek the Lord. I need to just go talk to God about this. God, I don't know what to do and I'm afraid. And we're going to see his prayer in this chapter. And more than that, he doesn't just seek the Lord himself. He turns to the people around him and he says, look, we need to seek the Lord together. And he proclaims a fast that they would set aside a time of you know, refraining from food so that they could dedicate themselves fully upon the things of God and the Spirit and, and to seek the Lord. And beautiful, it says that all Judah, the whole nation, it's almost as if he proclaims a national day of prayer, if you would, a national time of prayer. They come together and they seek the Lord because they're kind of facing, to a degree, a national crisis in this moment. What a beautiful example. And verse 5 says, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And then he begins to pray. Look at his prayer. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? You see, the first thing he does is he begins to pray when he's fearful and he feels very intimidated by something that would just totally be too hard for him to handle or bring any resolution to. The first thing he does is he starts to pray and he just starts to praise God and reflect upon the almighty power of God. He just begins to pray and before he lays anything out, he just says, Lord, are you not God in heaven? The idea is, is God, I'm here on earth and I have this earthly perspective but God, you have heaven's perspective. God's in heaven. God sees everything, past, present, and even what's going to happen in the future. God has a heavenly perspective on everything. That's, that's a much higher perspective than us. And we have to remember that sometimes because we face the situation and we're just seeing it from this very narrow perspective and all we can see is this big, massive army or this big, intimidating thing in front of us, a problem or whatever we're facing. But God's perspective is way different than ours. God sees the past, God sees what's going on, and God already sees what can happen tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. And we have to remember that, that he's a father, that like any father, he cares about us. He's a father with a heavenly perspective, and he says, Lord, you are in control over all the kingdoms of the nations. You rule, and in your hand, God, there's power. God, you have the ability to do things that I can't with my own hand and my own strength. God, your hand is much stronger. And he says, Lord, more than that, nobody can withstand you. Lord, if you determine something, it's done. And as he's saying this, no doubt he's encouraging himself of the great almighty power of God. He says, going on, verse 7 in his prayer, are you not our God? I like that. Lord, you're not just this powerful God. You're our God. You're, you're the God that we're in relationship with, who we live in fellowship with. You're our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel. God, you fought for us before. And you gave that land, notice, to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. Take notice that verse seven, Abraham, your friend forever. You know, we have a few times in the 
Old Testament, and then James says as well, where Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. Here, the eternal friend of God, the friend of God forever. What a wonderful title. What an amazing thing to think about who God is and that God would call Abraham his friend. I mean, ruler, lord, master, king, but that he says, Abraham's my friend. I want to be Abraham's friend. What an amazing thing. To actually have a friendship with God, that kind of level of intimacy shows you how awesome and powerful God is, but yet how compassionate and how intimate and personal God still wants to be, that he would say, Abraham's my friend. I want a friendship with Abraham. And that God would want us to be a friend with him. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants who don't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. What an amazing thing to think that we could actually be a friend of God, a friend of the King of Kings that you can have that relationship with him. And he says, verse eight, and they dwell in this land and have built you a sanctuary, God, in your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sewer, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple in your presence, for your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. He recalls the prayer really of Solomon as he dedicated the temple that God would intervene in their times of need. And verse 10, now here are the people of Ammon, he says, and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they returned from them and did not destroy them. And here they are, he says, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, God, which you've given us to inherit. So he says, he rehearses to God what he knew of what God had done in the past. He says, God, when we went through their land as a people, you wouldn't let us bother them or interfere with them. And, and God, you kept us from doing anything and, and to avoid them altogether. He says, when we came out of the land of Egypt and we didn't destroy them. And now here we did nothing wrong with them. And God, now here they are rewarding us. I, I like the language he uses, verse 11 by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. He's talking about the land of Israel as a Jew, as a king in Israel. And he says, God, these people who are not Jewish, who are not Israelites, he says, they are trying to throw us out of your possession because the land belongs to God, your possession, the land, which you've given to us as the Jewish people to inherit. Now, would to God, how much policy that would resolve there if people would just read the Bible. Nothing new has changed. Still to this day, there are people who are non-Jewish of descent trying to throw the Jewish people, the Israeli nation, out of the land, the possession that God gave to them. Trying to do the same thing, to push them out of the land that God has given to them. God gave them that land. The Bible speaks of it very clearly. And that never works when you try and violate what God's doing. He's not going to stand for that. Look at the beautiful prayer as he goes on, verse 12. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Lord, will you not deal with them? They're violating what you've done, which is to give us this land and threatening us. He says, For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And what a great prayer when you find yourself in those kind of overwhelming situations where you are afraid and you are legitimately intimidated by the problem you're facing or the situation that is just way too big for you. And you find yourself realizing, I don't have the power to solve this. 
I don't have the resources to fix this situation. Honestly, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to begin with this. And here, that's exactly what he's saying. He says, Lord, we don't have the power to resolve our situation or the ability to fix this or to stop it. And he says, Lord, honestly, we don't even know what to do. We don't even know where to turn. But he says wisely, but our eyes are on you, Lord. Lord, the only thing we know to do is to just put our eyes on you. The idea is independence, in reliance and expectancy. God, we don't know what to do or where to turn, but we know who to turn to. We're going to turn to you. And our eyes are upon you, Lord. We're going to wait upon you to act and to help and believe that you can do in your great power what we could never do in our own human strength or resources or ideas. He says, verse 13, Now all Judah with their little ones, wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Beautiful thing. A whole family assembled together seeking the Lord that day in Judah there. And then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and the son of all the other lineage, his name is Jehaziel, that's all we need to know. And he was a Levite of the sons of Asaph, verse 14, in the midst of the assembly. And now this prophetic word comes to this man Jehaziel as they pray, the spirit of God comes upon this man Jehaziel and gives him a prophetic word, a word that would encourage the people Prophecy is to edify, to exhort, to comfort. And so now here they are. They're having this prayer meeting and they're seeking God and they're crying out to God. We don't know what to do, Lord, and we don't have any power, but our eyes are on you. And now God's going to send an encouraging word. The spirit is poured out and this man receives a prophecy, a word from the Lord. And verse 15 is this word God gives to him for the assembly. It says that he came and he said, listen, verse 15, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I mean, how wonderful had, had that have been to, to hear that. You don't have to be afraid. I know you are afraid, but the word of the Lord, you don't have to be afraid, God says. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be dismayed and all disoriented and worked up and worried because he says, yeah, there's a battle to be fought, but the battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's battle. He's going to step in and be the one to represent you and to help you. He says, the battle's not yours. It's God's battle. And sometimes, folks, we need that reminder because sometimes we get afraid because we just think, I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I don't know how I'm going to solve this. And, and we think that we have to engage in the battle and we have to fight you know, whatever it is and fight against whatever we're trying to fight against. And we're trying to resist evil even sometimes and we're trying to do what we got to do and engage in the battle and God says look it, the battle's not yours to fight if you try and fight the battle you, all that's going to do is just make more bloodshed God says just remember the battle's not yours this is my battle God says it's my battle the battle's not yours he says you don't have to be afraid and then he tells them verse 16 going on tomorrow go down against them and surely they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. So God says exactly how they're going to come up to invade and you'll find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeriel. You will not need to fight, God says, in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still 
and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. I mean, imagine that word coming to them, this incredible encouragement. Look, the battle's not yours, it's God's. You don't have to be afraid. But God says in faith, tomorrow, you need to go out against them and position yourself in battle array and stand there before them and make yourself available in front of them. And God says, and this is exactly where they're going to be and how they're going to come up. So I want you to go out and position yourself like you're going to fight in the battle. Now, again, put yourself in their humanity, in their flesh. They're thinking, oh, wait a minute, you don't want us to fight, but you want us to go out there and stand in front of the enemy and go, you, hi, you know, fire away. You know, the battle's not ours. It's God's fight. I mean, in their humanity, that had to have been tough, right? God's asking them to do something in faith. God's asking them to stand in faith, to trust God, to take him at his word, to position themselves. But he says, you stand still and you'll see the salvation of the Lord. This is exactly what God told the children of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt, remember? And they got to the Red Sea and the Red Sea was in front of them and there's no way to turn to the right or the left. And now the Egyptians are breathing down their neck and the people are going, it would have been better. Why didn't you just leave us to die in Egypt? And God tells Moses to tell the people, tell them, stand still and you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. And that's when God mightily parts the sea and they cross over on dry ground and then God closes the water on the Egyptians and deals with the whole situation for them. And sometimes, you know what, that's what God calls us to do. Sometimes God brings us to a situation and the way God wants us to conquer is by faith alone. And God says, here's your battle. Your part of the battle is to stand in faith, to position yourself in faith not take up arms, not engage, but to position yourself in faith and to trust, I heard your prayer and I will work sovereignly and supernaturally in this situation by my divine intervention with no need of human help and assistance. So they're told to go out and verse 18, Jehoshaphat hearing these words of encouragement bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So as they hear these encouraging words from God, they're just humbled. And it says they just begin to worship the Lord responsibly. And that should be our response. When God speaks to us very clearly, we should just begin to bow ourselves before the Lord. They bow down with their faces on the ground and some are standing, some are bowing face down and they're just worshiping the Lord. And it says with voices loud and high, they're praising God. And then verse 20, notice this is called obedience. It says verse 20, so they rose early in the morning. That is probably before they could think about it too long. Because if you think about it too long, they would have said, mm, are you sure that was God's word? They just, faith and obedience, delayed obedience always causes problems. So they just get up early the next morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went, Jehoshaphat, the king, reinforced God's heart and word. Jehoshaphat, their king, their leader, and this is what a good leader does. He said, hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. So Jehoshaphat says, look, God has spoken to us. God has given to us his word. And he says, believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord and we're going to be established. That is, we'll be okay. God will secure us. And he says, if we believe God's word through the prophets, then we'll even prosper. We'll excel. We'll succeed. 
And again, the reward of faith. And I love how Jehoshaphat doesn't say just believe. He doesn't just say have faith. Oftentimes we say that as Christians. Oh, just have faith, brother. Well, faith and faith does nothing for me. It's who our faith is in. It's not just faith. It's not just positive thinking, right? There was a book years ago, I remember somebody tried to give me when I was younger, you know, the, the power of positive thinking or something like that. We just That does nothing. Believing in the Lord who can bring positive, powerful results, that's where overcoming comes. So he says, you believe in the Lord. That is, trust the Lord. You believe in who the Lord is and what the Lord can do for you and what he promised you in his word. You believe in him. And he says, you're going to be established and secure and you're going to prosper. And then when he consulted with the people, verse 21, it says, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. So they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. So notice, talk about exercising faith. So confident was he in the Lord, in God's power and what God could do by his miraculous work and in God's promise of his word that God is faithful. He demonstrates it practically because it says he appoints singers and they go out before the army. So he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want the worship team up front. God's choir out front. And you just lead us singing and praising and worshiping the Lord. And I can imagine as they're coming towards the enemy, they're thinking, here they are, you know, just, you know, Jesus, name above all names. And, and the people are going, what are these people doing? And they're just coming out praising the Lord and singing worship. Uh, and again, it had to kind of probably befuddle the enemy as they saw them coming out and there's all the worship singers before the army itself. And look what God does as they trust God and they start to worship. Verse 22. Now, when they began to sing, worshiping instead of working things out themselves. It's a key here because a lot of times we try and work things out ourselves instead of just resting and worshiping and praying and trusting God. They don't do that. It says they start to worship instead of work things out. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come out against Judah and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. That is, they turned upon themselves, the armies, and they started fighting one another. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped them to destroy one another. So God supernaturally intervenes and somehow causes these ambushes and these conflicts and they just divisively turn against one another and all the armies start destroying one another. I don't know what God did, but a lot of times God does stuff we don't understand. And God just makes these armies literally enter into conflict and warfare and it says they actually helped to destroy one another. Look at verse 24. So when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude of this threatening thing in their lives, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies, precious jewelry, and they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. 
And they were there days. It actually says that they were there days gathering to spoil because there's so much. So not only did God defeat the problem for them, not only did God resolve the major issue that there's no way that they could take care of and God destroyed what was threatening to destroy them, but God actually then blessed them on top of it. Do you see that? It says God destroyed their enemy and then it says they were there for days gathering so much spoil they couldn't even collect it all. It was more than they could carry. So not only did God bring them victory, but God actually blessed them and they came out more blessed on the backside. They didn't lose anything. <laughs> they actually got ahead. They actually gained and God gave them advantage. And only God has these amazing ways sometimes to take what could have been destructive and actually turn it around and make it something where we end up being more blessed on the other side. And just God is a ways of working like that. And he's not a God of partiality. He did it for them and he can do it for you. He can do it for us when we face our own situations. And on the fourth day, it says, verse 26, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka or the Valley of Blessing. What a neat name. That place became the Valley of Blessing. And then they returned every man to Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies and the Lord does have a way of doing that where he gives us victory over our enemies and we're just you know filled with the joy of the Lord and rejoicing in what great victories he wrought for us so they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord and the fear of God it says was then on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel so the other nations again God doesn't just do stuff to intervene in our life God's always at the same time looking for opportunity for testimony and so it says all the other surrounding nations heard about this miraculous intervention that Yahweh God brought for the people of Israel and they all became terrified and guess what they decided maybe we should invade those people and so God works on their behalf to demonstrate his glory and a lot of times you know God sometimes will let us go through things folks and we'll have certain experiences so that not only we can have a victory and we can be blessed but so that God's name can be proclaimed and there can be a testimony and people who are onlookers see the power of God and there becomes a message that goes forth to people who are watching the situation that took place. So it says, verse 30, then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for God gave him rest all around. The realm of his reign became quiet and it says God gave him rest all around. I, I love how the Bible tells us that the rest, that is the peace and the quiet, it, it came from God. God gave him rest. Did God let him go through a time that was turbulent? Did God let him go through a trial and some difficulties? Yes. But ultimately, God showed his power, showed his strength. God revealed things about himself. God taught lessons to Jehoshaphat, deep spiritual lessons, character lessons, which I guarantee you Jehoshaphat would never say on the other side of that, boy, I wish I didn't go through that because do you realize what Jehoshaphat got to learn about God? And he's on the other side of that and then God brought a time of rest and you know, after the storm, God always brings a time of rest and he settles things back down and things become peaceful and quiet once again and the same for us you know we, we may go through our storms and our seasons and our battles but the wonderful thing is that's when we get to see the power of God 
That's when we get to see God move and God do amazing things and testimonies are wrought for the Lord and we're amazed at who God is and we find ourselves like them appreciating worship for a whole new reason. I mean, do you see all the continuous worship and the people rejoicing in the Lord? Because they saw things about God that in their hearts, how could you refrain from wanting to worship God? It's just the, the natural, I've got to worship God. I have to worship. God's so amazing. He's so wonderful. And so the people just wanted to worship in that responsive way. So why don't we stand together? We'll just conclude there.